0: Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen, Money Matters. The deposit a day keeps depreciation at bay. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend Andrew. Andrew, how are you? And what are you drinking, man?
1: Good, just drinking some Sanguiam R. Ar- ah, damn, it, I was supposed to say it fast. eco <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> you're not. You're not drinking the Yang beer. It's actually it from the same pr- company. Uh, oh, you know, I should, I should have drank the Yang. I was just so – this is a sour beer. I was kind of excited. Oh, nice well, out. that's actually okay.
0: That's actually okay because I'm drinking a sour beer. So no. I will post you to Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yep, <laughs> Melanese doesn't have a sour beer. It's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I got the uh, the dogfish head Sequench. It's like that one with oh, the lime. That looks Limes. really good. It's so good. Yeah, Matt had a bunch of it in his fridge, and I went searching for it. Um, and when I did, I came across the liquor Mecca in Boulder, Colorado. There is a liquor store that (laughs) is like, it's like the Disneyland of booze. Mm -hmm. It was the biggest liquor store I had ever seen. Like I had imagined a big liquor store and this was like three times as big as that. It was insanity. They had like 15 kinds of Japanese whiskey where most liquor stores will have zero kinds of Japanese whiskey. And that's
1: the only (laughs) kind of whiskey that you buy.
0: I've never bought Japanese whiskey. Really? It's all what? expensive. Well, like, you can get Suntory for pretty cheap, but like I've always really wanted to get the more expensive kinds, that names of which elude uh, me right now. But they're a you know, hundred bucks a bottle, so hmm. I have always yes. refrained. But they had this stuff. I had to search for it, but it was it's really good. And yeah, I definitely recommend giving it a shot. Anyway, today's catchphrase came from Frogfinder Finder on Twitter. Thank you for your catchphrase. And if any of you uh, other people have catchphrases for us or embarrassing songs for Andrew to sing at the beginning of the <laughs> episodes, <laughs> you can send them to us. Our Twitter handle is at Money Matters Man or our email is listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. So we're going back to basics in this episode, aren't we, Andrew? Damn right. Yeah. We've got Melanie uh, Melanie Lockhart from DearDebt.com, right?
2: Yes. Deardebt.com and, and also Dear Debt the book. Oh, really? You have a book, too? Yes. Awesome. Yes. Book and of the you, same name.
0: You paid off $81,000 in debt.
2: Yes, $81,000 in student loan debt. Crazy.
0: And it is made more impressive by the fact that you graduated with a degree in theater. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> I have a, a really wonderful degree in theater and a master's degree in something so esoteric named performance studies.
0: Is that, is that where you don't actually perform? You study the performers?
2: Yeah, exactly. Like you don't actually do anything. You just write about other people doing things and then analyze it. (laughs) Pretty much why I'm not in performance studies anymore. I realized that I was not uh, suited for academia and just writing about things. I wanted to actually do stuff.
0: So what brought the dead about in the first place? What, what convinced you that performance studies was for you initially?
2: Yeah. So actually I have an arts background, as you can tell with my theater degree, and I was working in the nonprofit sector as a program coordinator and working with children. And I really believed in the power of the arts to uh, bring about education, bring about social change. And so I went to NYU and got my master's degree in performance studies And took on a bunch of debt to get that degree. And I really thought that I was going to work in either policy. I had dreams of being a professor. I had dreams of working, you know, at a high level at a nonprofit arts education program. And sort of all of these things didn't really happen because I was stuck in debt and couldn't find a job afterwards. Surprise, surprise. And, you know, $81,000, 58 of that was from NYU and 23,000 of that was from my undergrad Wow. And it, how, how many
0: years the, was the NYU program?
2: The NYU program was actually just a one-year advanced program. So, uh, so it was two, like three. A very, I know, fifteen thousand oh for one year. I'm sure it's even more expensive now because I graduated in 2011. So I'm sure by now it's some astronomical crazy amount. So yeah, imagine for people going there for undergrad, time's up by four.
0: Now it's just a leg There's like, they got like a weird guillotine device at the door and just, yeah, Yeah, it's like, you're done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. 53K for one year.
2: 58,000. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, it was about 53,000 and I borrowed 58. So yeah, you're, you're you're right actually.
0: And then you got to live in New York city at the same time.
2: Yeah. And that's actually, uh, sort of what happened is, (laughs) No, actually, I couldn't afford to live in New York. So I, I graduated. And six months later, I was kind of forced to move because my grace period had come about. I had my student loans due and my rent in New York. And I realized there's no way in hell that I can actually afford to do both. So I actually moved to Portland, Oregon after that and cut my rent in half and moved in with my partner, split everything and started over there. And even though that was a cheaper move for me, I still struggled in Portland to find a job and Mm -hmm. was making 10 to $12 an hour that first year after graduation.
0: Well, I was, yeah, I was reading on your blog that you're having trouble finding a job in Portland, which is tough because as my Portland friends have told me, everyone in Portland has to have two jobs.
2: <laughs> Pretty much I mean and, and it's a very service oriented city I mean there's tons mm-hmm. of restaurants and bars and everything and I thought oh well, I'll definitely be able to find a job as a barista or something but I swear you have to have a master's in baristology just to get a job there. <laughs> Where can so I get I'll, my
0: degree in baristology and does know, it I'm cost sure Portland 50, does
2: offer that yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> actually my friend Matt and I filmed a coffee making course. Uh, a couple months ago so we'll just say that counts as the Breestology <laughs> degree yeah, Exactly. You take that
2: course <laughs> get you an emphasis in latte art
0: <laughs> yeah you got to be able to draw at least 16 different shapes if you want to work at this coffee shop <laughs> sister <laughs> but obviously you figured it out you got a job and eventually you moved into self-employment um yeah. now is that self-employment solely through your blog or some other things you do on the side
2: So actually I make most of my money from freelance writing and event planning. So all of that has really come from the blog though. My blog itself doesn't make a lot of money, but it's been used as a leveraging point for freelance writing. I mean, having a blog is pretty much the best portfolio when you're just getting started. You know, you might not have clips on other websites, but you can say, Hey, I have this whole blog where I've been writing for years and I would like to write for your site. So, you know, I've written for sites like Credit Karma, Student Loan Hero, Self Lender, Daily Worth. And so now I'm a freelance writer and event planner. Um, You know, Andrew has gone to some of my events in New York and at FinCon and other places. So it's been a wild, wild ride, but definitely love working for myself and and making more money than I was making a few years ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's great. And I mean, you definitely have learned a lot about debt, I'm sure, through... Paying off eighty one thousand dollars of it.
2: (laughs) Yes, quite
0: Um, a lot. (laughs) So I I think what we want to do with this episode is just like give people like a breakdown of a lot of the you know key terms and concepts in credit and debt. Apparently, Andrew wants me to talk about like the thousands year old history of debt and why it's all related (laughs) to violence and slavery. Well, I mean, you were telling us before (laughs) we
1: recorded. Yeah, you're being
2: such a tease like what? I think you said yeah. something
1: like no one killed anybody until credit was created and then Yeah, no
0: one yeah, like literally the credit cards came on the market and that's when murder was invented actually. <laughs> <laughs> now, so I'm reading this book, it's called Debt the First 5000 Years. It's like a 400-page long anthropological analysis of debt and credit and the rise of markets, the rise of debt, how it factors into human relations. And I think the dude wrote the book because our assumption on, we have like these assumptions on debt. Number one, Mm -hmm. all debts must be paid. Like debts have to be paid, which is kind of crazy because if all debts had to be paid, then lenders would make the craziest loans. Here, I will lend you $1 million, baby. You have to pay me back. (laughs) Um, And the other thing is that In economics, you always learn that before money, there was the barter economy where Mm -hmm. Farmer Joe would trade a cow to, you know, sister Constantine or whatever for 18 chickens or whatever it is. And uh, when you go out and you look at the anthropological evidence, like there is no evidence of that really ever happening in a normal economy. The only time you get barter is between people who basically like don't know each other well, could possibly be enemies and will have basically nothing to do with each other after the exchange takes place. And there's good examples of this. But the part I was reading recently was uh, he, he kind of delineates between like what he calls human economies and market economies, where in human economies, usually there are several different types of currencies and a lot of them, like you can't pay for certain things with certain types of currencies, like in the the TIVS society in Africa, like the highest value is like human life and the only thing that you could ever um you could trade for human life is another human
1: life but once unless the violence APR comes is in, really really low
0: unless the APR is really
2: really low you a great promotional rate but they had this crazy
0: system where it's like if you wanted to marry somebody's sister you had to basically like pony up one of your sisters in exchange and then like oh the God. brother of the sister you want to marry becomes like her guardian and he can either marry her or like trade her off to somebody else for another sister and it became like crazy and eventually you get these big men in society who have all these sisters that they're guardians of.
1: Oh my um God. that's actually a great segue it gets, into it gets, credit score. <laughs> no, but, okay, so
0: so basically the whole point is like once once violent like it requires violence to go from that to any sort of society where you can put value on a human life. And where markets start to develop around everything, where, where universal currencies start to be invented. Um, and like the slave trade is a very good and visceral example of that because, like, once slavery comes into it, then you equate human life with other things and markets start to spring up. I don't know. It's 400 pages. It's kind of hard wow. for me to really explain a lot of it, but.
2: That's a beast of a book. It is,
0: yeah, it's a very interesting read. And I think, like, the main takeaway that the average person can get from it um you can watch the crash course world history series video on mo- the history of money basically it's just like barter economies weren't a thing hmm. debt is like the default mode of society but it's it's not it's not quantifiable exchangeable debt like we think of it it's more just like obligation to your neighbors to your family to your friends everybody is kind of interconnected and dependent on each other and the bonds of debt keep people together so But once a market economy arises, then you've got transferable debt, which is what we deal with now and what people have to understand because it's a lot different.
1: Being that wow. debt is like the fundamental like formation of society.
2: Like a national pastime. Right, yeah.
1: <laughs> Melanie, like what what do you think is the the first thing that we need to know about us so we don't, I don't know, get bartered away with somebody.
2: Yeah. I think the most important thing that people need to know about debt is obviously sort of the terms and conditions of what you're actually borrowing. I know when I took on my student loans, I had no idea how it worked. I didn't know anything about interest. I didn't know about monthly payments. I just knew that I was borrowing this large sum of money and that I would have to pay it back someday. It was only when I graduated when I was 22 and I was like, oh, my monthly payments are 250 a month. And then not until I graduated from NYU and I was making these massive payments and I realized a good chunk of my payments are going to interest. How is this possible? Mm -hmm. And I calculated my daily interest rate and my daily interest rate was $11 per day. And it was making me insane. And I was throwing so much money towards interest. And I think, I would not have borrowed that much money if I truly understood how interest works and Mm -hmm. how uh, monthly payments work and how much it can extend your repayment term and how much it can add to the life of the loan. Um, for years to come. you know, I think we always think, oh, I'm just borrowing $5,000. But if you're paying the minimum, you're not just borrowing $5,000. You're paying much more than that over the life of the loan. So definitely knowing how interest works, how that can capitalize on your loans, how it will affect the total cost of the loan because you're never just borrowing that amount.
1: Yeah. So how does interest work? And perhaps coupled with APR, or does that yeah. even matter? Is that just like a fake?
2: Yeah. Thing? Yeah. So interest is really the fee that you pay for the convenience of borrowing money, right? So you, you borrow money from a lender because you don't have money. You know, you take out student loans, you take out a mortgage, you put on, you know, have credit card debt and the lender will give you that money, but you know, because they want a return on their investment, they charge you interest as a convenience fee for borrowing that money. And that can capitalize, you know, on your loan APR, uh, with credit cards is annual percentage rate. It's similar to interest, but it also includes the, you know, total fees and the total cost of the loan. So it's a little bit different, but very similar, but APR is typically used for credit cards. So it's really important for people to actually, know what that is because most APRs for credit cards are an average of 15% and that's quite high. And, you know, if you miss a minimum payment, there's a different kind of APR called a penalty APR that can jump right up Mm -hmm. and, you know, you'll pay even more if you have a, a cash advance. There's a different APR for that. So, you know, you're not just necessarily stuck with one kind of interest rate, especially if you have a credit card.
1: So it's almost yeah, like so- a tease APR where they give you that number in the thing they mail you, that,
2: mm-hmm. that big number,
1: but it's not really what you pay for most of, like if you miss a payment, they're actually paying you, you're, you're paying a lot more
2: exactly and i think you yeah. know those little promotional aprs can be so seductive it's like 0% for 15 months and you're like wow i don't have to pay anything i can just rack up all this you know these charges on my credit card but if you miss one payment you know your interest rate is going to shoot up to a penalty apr and you know if you don't read the fine print you can pay 0% for 15 months and then month 16, it could be jumped up you know, to 18% and you wow. might not even realize that. So it's important yeah. to know what are the terms and conditions of the debt? Because usually those promotional rates are just a promotion. They expire. And when mm-hmm. will that be so that you can actually know what what is it going to be afterwards?
0: Yeah. And we were talking about this in our last interview, Andrew, this was kind of like the, the like the Tinder that started the fire of the housing crisis because <laughs> they kept making all these mortgages, but they had yes. these ridiculous teaser rates it's like basically you can mm-hmm. pay nothing for this house for two years. So everyone's got a baller house or five and,
2: and, and you don't even have years, to have good credit either. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's just like, oh, you're just a regular dude off the street who is not wearing any clothes and you have literally no bank account. That's fine.
2: There's a, a five-bedroom house. <laughs> you
0: can have that for two years. You pay nothing, and then after two years, the teaser rates expire, and that's what caused, well, at least what the first domino that started yeah. everything. Everyone should go read The Big Short because it's an amazing book. Yes, but it's a similar thing with, uh, with credit cards. <laughs> like introductory APR expires, and if you don't take it, if you don't take advantage of it in the right way, you can end up with a ton of debt that now all of a sudden has this insane rate on it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you did mention the APR is inclusive with the fees, right? Is that what you said?
2: Yeah, it's pretty much the total cost of the loan and fees. So, you know, okay. if you know, there's accumulated interest and additional charges, you know, you will pay that annual percentage rate, you know, throughout the year. And it could be calculated yeah. different depending on the loan.
0: So, if my credit card has an annual fee, is that included in the APR or is that a separate thing?
2: I believe it's a separate fee. You know, if you have okay. an annual fee, of like $95. So then you're going to be charged that, you know, once yeah. per year.
0: Also, I guess on that note, like if you are considering a credit card with an annual fee, you have to ask yourself, am I actually going to get benefits that outweigh this fee through my spending habits? And will my spending habits shift subtly um, to be like less responsible because of the rewards I'm getting? I think that's another thing people don't think about. If they think, oh, I'm getting miles off this, I'll spend the money because I'm going to get miles. And they, if they wouldn't have spent that money, otherwise they could have just bought a plane ticket with
1: on the, that uh, money they're spending. On the yearly fees, uh, Melanie, I know a lot of people who get like the initial credit cards who don't have great credit. They just get charged a fee almost for, for the benefit of having a card. Mm-hmm. Uh, if say you started that way, you know, built your credit and it's like two, three years down the line and they won't cut the fee... What would you do? I mean, we get a lot of emails like that where people are afraid to lose the credit history.
2: Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, if you've built your credit with a card, you know, you're just starting out, I would talk to the creditor and just say, look, I've made all these payments on time for the past couple of years. I'd like to keep this card. You know, can we negotiate something? I think more often than not, people are willing to drop an annual fee. If you have major payments on time, of course, you need to be a responsible borrower and Mm -hmm. you know make sure that you've done your due diligence on your part. Um, But I would definitely talk to your um, credit card company and see if they will waive the annual fee or if not, if if there's another, let's say it's a secured card or, you know, sort of a, a credit card that's geared towards people with poor credit. See if you can graduate to a similar credit card within that company, maybe.
1: Okay, so if you ask them, they're like, Melanie, you're great, but no. Uh, we really yeah. love our $100 a year, you're saying that they may allow you to upgrade to their like triple platinum, whatever, or, or whatever the next tier is. And you would still hold on to your credit history? Or would it die when you get rid of that initial card?
2: You know what, that's a really good question. I'm not 100% positive. But you know, I think it can't hurt because you're with the same company. And you know, you can ask, mm-hmm. I think
1: like almost like a barter. Like I will upgrade my card if you just stop charging me.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, with the annual fee, usually lenders want to keep you as a customer. So, you know, if you've been responsible and, you know, making your payments on time, if you have even just one missed payment, I think they're much less likely to do anything for you.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Never, never miss a payment.
2: No, that's, that's credit rule. Number one, never miss a payment.
0: Do you recommend people use automatic payments? Like, did you ever use those yourself?
2: I didn't. And I I think there are pros and cons to automatic payments. So obviously the pros are, you will never miss a payment and that's credit rule. Number one, you know, your FICO credit score, 35% of it is your payment history. And you know, lenders want to know, can you pay on time? So if you have automatic payments, then you'll never miss a payment. You'll you know, have that portion of your credit score covered. So, in that regard, I definitely think that automatic payments are helpful. For me, I never did automatic payments because A, I'm a control freak and I want <laughs> to have total control over when I make a payment and how much it will be. And also, it forced me to be more mindful of my money because I think if you're just charging, charging, charging and swiping and then have an automatic payment, you're not really aware of what you're spending it on because it's already taken care of. You know, when I Mm -hmm. logged into my credit card account and I said, Oh wow, it's, you know, that much money I've spent this month and I'm looking through all the charges, making sure they're all correct. Sometimes they can be wrong you need to dispute a charge. That's another thing. Um, it it forces you to be a little, it forces you to be a little more mindful. I think, Mm.
0: So do you actually go through your statement every month and look at each charge?
2: I do. I okay. definitely do. And, and I've seen people, you know, I've seen charges that were double charged and had to dispute it, you know. And then it's a good way to make sure that there's no fraud or sort of any suspicious charges.
1: What do you say to yeah, the that person point. who gets like, I don't know, cold shutters when uh, you suggest them going through their, their statement?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say... Uh, Mm -hmm. do it in a timeframe, uh, that works for you. So maybe not doing it weekly, but maybe just once a month. And Mm -hmm. Hey, if you need a a glass of wine or a beer while you do it, or, you know, even if you just want to sign up for something like mint.com, which can sort of tell you how much you're spending and, and just being more mindful about your money. I think the biggest takeaway is to be more mindful of what you're actually spending on and not just using credit as a blanket to just spend on whatever you want.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. So though I don't, though I don't do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we were talking about on-time payments, which are huge. You know, when we were talking about uh, credit history, I guess what percentage or, or how important is credit history, and then just like what else goes into this blanket score, like seven hundred. Mm-hmm. What does that mean?
2: Yeah. So your credit score, you know, the the most common credit scoring model is the FICO scoring model. FICO stands for Fair Isaac Corporation. Don't necessarily need to know that, but many people have heard, you know, FICO credit score, FICO credit score. But what what is actually in that? I think a lot of people don't necessarily know. But you know, as we discussed, it's thirty five percent payment history, thirty percent amounts owed, fifteen percent length of credit history, ten percent credit mix, and ten percent new credit. So you know, if you're just starting out and you're building your credit. Really, that's only 15%, the length of credit history. Obviously, the longer you have credit, the better it will be, but that's a relatively small amount. Really, the, the most important things you want to do to build your credit and to keep your credit in good standing are make payments on time. Each and every month, never miss a payment and also keep your credit utilization low. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have a credit limit of a thousand dollars, you don't want to be charging a thousand dollars every month and just paying it off. Because even if you charge it up to the max and even if you pay it off every month, you're going to look risky to a lender because you're using all of your available credit. So typically it's recommended to keep your balances below 30% of your credit limit. That's just a guideline. I know some people have different points of view on that, but uh, based on my research, that's a, a pretty common uh, standard, You know, below 30%. So if you have a thousand dollar credit limit, you wouldn't wanna be charging necessarily more than 300.
0: So could you break down for us um, why the credit rating agencies see credit utilization as such a risk factor. Because, I mean, if you think about it from our perspective, if I'm paying my bills every single month and, you know, say I'm getting airline miles or something off my credit cards, then it is in my best interest to put every single transaction onto the credit card because I'm getting benefits I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Mm. So if I have, a you know, 100% on-time payment history, why is my utilization such a big factor and why do I got to keep it low?
2: I think the, the lenders look at it as you relying too much on credit and it could mean that you are you know, going to be a risky borrower later on, you know, I think your on-time payments, you know, definitely are the biggest factor in your credit score, but utilization is the second most important thing in your credit score because it can indicate future behavior, you know, creditors, they want to watch their back. They want to make sure that you can pay back your loan. And, and if they're saying, you know, if they're, if they're thinking that you're going to be relying on your credit and just borrowing up to the max every month, that can be a red flag for, um, some lenders.
0: Okay. Interesting.
1: So, Melanie, if I have like a 650 credit score, like an 850 or like a 12,000 credit score, like... (laughs) what <laughs> is that good? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like what is,
2: what I, I wish make? there, I wish there was a 12,000 credit score. That would be pretty awesome. But with the FICO model, the numbers are typically between 300 and 850 and you know, a, a good benchmark for a quote, good credit score is 700 and above. Mm-hmm. Um, it could mm-hmm. be a little bit lower than that, you know, sort of fair to, to good, but a, a, a pretty common standard is 700 or above for a good credit score. And 850 is a quote, perfect credit score. I only know one person that has that, which is insane. Um, you know, anything below 700 is, you know, fair to good. And then especially when you're getting in the 500s, you know, early 600s is kind of a poor credit score. And if you're in the 500 or 600 range, you know, you'll definitely want to, sort of improve your credit so that you can get better rates on loans, make sure you can get approved for an apartment. Um, You know, there are so many things that require your credit. You know, I applied for this apartment in Los Angeles last year, and I'm self-employed, and they relied heavily on my credit. And luckily, you know, I had like a 780 credit score, so it was good enough for them to show that I'm a responsible borrower and I make my payments on time.
1: You know, if I was renting... An apartment, and someone had an eight fifty credit score, like perfect. I'm like, I don't know, you're so boring, I can't even <laughs> yeah. talk <meet> to you.
2: <laughs> I don't trust you. Who are you? <laughs>
1: exactly, it's <That's> fake. <laughs> it's not a real thing. But yeah, my, I've
0: I've had friends who couldn't get apartments because of that. Wow. So yeah,
2: crazy. It's, yeah, it's a real it thing. Can be people, tough. People get rejected, you know, for apartments because they don't meet the credit requirements, you know, people get charged higher interest rates on car loans, on mortgages, on Mm -hmm. private student loans, you know, it can cost you thousands of dollars over the life of the loan because you have poor credit.
0: Yeah. And I know I used to fret about the other factors of the credit score, like, oh, the age of my credit is so, so bad. And like, it's good that that doesn't contribute much because you can't really do much to control it. Yeah, The only thing you can do to control it is to not close your initial credit cards because that will bring down the average age and then Mm -hmm. i guess if you're opening new credit cards that also brings down the average but if you have a crappy credit card again it's a low scoring factor so if you need a better credit card it's probably not like a huge ding
1: guys i I just have to say you made me feel so weird after i told my joke and you guys (laughs) laughed and then you both just didn't say anything <laughs> i was like wow well, these guys are dicks <laughs> sorry no no it's i'm cool. sorry Most-
0: andrew I, to be 100 percent honest like when you told it i was logging into credit karma to look at my score because i was really curious and then i was like and i wanted to go look at the factor things so sure, i like knew sure. the percentages and everything.
2: look we were preoccupied like- we're, we're consumed with credit <laughs> so
1: uh, people talk about like, there's like good credit. There's like bad credit, like medium credit. Like what is that a thing? And are I, I mean, like what would be good credit like to your debt to your mom?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're talking about, you know, sort of good debt, bad debt, which I, I freaking hate so much. I think it's. I really personally, as someone that hates debt, all kinds of debt, I really do not like the good debt, bad debt sort of argument, because anytime you owe anyone money, it's never good. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely think there is kind of a difference in the way people view debt. You know, mortgages and student loans are the quote good debt because it's usually seen as an investment in your wealth, an investment in your education, an investment in your career. Bad debt is typically, you know, credit card debt, personal loans, um, you know, definitely any sort of payday loans or uh, things like that because it doesn't have a return on your investment and it has very high interest rates.
0: Hmm. So you're are you you're of the opinion that all debt is bad debt?
2: I kind of am. I am one of those weird, crazy debt averse people. So what you guys should know is I actually did not get my first credit card until I was twenty eight years old.
1: Wow. Wow. Uh,
2: because I, I, I was so debt averse. I took out a bunch of student loans, as I've told you, <laughs> but I, I believed in going to school and I believed in my education, but I didn't even get my first credit card until I was 28 because I was so terrified but, of debt and Melody, thought,
1: I when, can't do this. When you're in school, they didn't offer you like free Frisbees or like T-shirts. <laughs> or-
2: I know, <laughs> actually, you know, you I sure just, can. you know. I said, you know what, I don't (laughs) want this Frisbee or this new T-shirt. So yeah, I had a pretty good willpower willpower back in in college.
1: I'll tell you, I was in college and we needed to get coal for like a a barbecue and uh, there was like a credit card desk there and they offered me um, a free screwdriver combo. It had all (laughs) the different types of the tops of screwdrivers. And I signed up, and I still have that set. So it was super worth it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Man, that is I didn't so get funny. Any of
0: that stuff? Freaking Congress! I think back in two thousand and eight, they passed some law that you can't market credit cards to eighteen year olds, or it's like it's much harder for somebody under twenty one to get a credit card mm-hmm. without a cosigner. But so you know, they th- definitely didn't do that.
1: I think for me. you brought up like a good scenario because. Back when I went to school, everyone had credit cards in they're 18 and then got into terrible debt and it's like a sad story, but a lot of people started earlier than you. And so I imagine you had almost catch up on lost ground to build your credit because yeah, I, like you said, you mm-hmm. needed it for your apartment. So like what, what was important for you to do to kind of put that together?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. So the reason why I ultimately got no, a credit no, thank card you. is, I appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, the, the reason I, I got a, a credit card was because I wanted to uh, diversify the types of debt I had. I know mm. it's, we live in such mm. a weird world where you have to have kind of this credit mix that does affect your credit score. So my student loans, were installment loans and I was paying them off very quickly. And, you know, I knew that they were going to be paid off. And, you know, as part of your credit score, they do like to see kind of a healthy mix of installment loans, which are student loans and then revolving credit, which is a credit card. So I wanted to add that to the mix so I th- that I could improve my credit score and also, you know, get approved for my, you know, own apartment and make sure that I can, you know, I was I was really interested in travel rewards at that time. I was curious about travel hacking, which you know, I've since gotten into, uh, but that was sort of the reason why to diversify my credit and yeah, sort of build my credit history from scratch aside from my student loans. Luckily, I already had a pretty good score because I had been making my payments on time for student loans. So I think, you know, people that do just have student loans and pay them on time, they will have a credit score Mm -hmm. and they can have a fairly good credit score if they make it on time. But my credit score definitely went up once I got a credit card and started making on-time payments for that as well.
1: Well, what if, um, say, say I just moved to this country and I, I mean, I have no credit, people like barely know that I exist or <laughs> I grew up, I got a Frisbee, made a few stupid decisions, <laughs> but, but mm-hmm. I want to redeem myself. What yeah. are things that I could do to kind of make these credit card companies love me?
2: write them a love letter (laughs) you know one thing kisses (laughs) XO XO um no I think for people with poor or bad credit or you know even with no credit you know you're not necessarily going to get approved for traditional credit cards and this is kind of a chicken and egg problem you know you need a credit history to get approved for credit but Mm -hmm. if you have no credit or if you have bad or poor credit no one's going to give you a chance what can you do
1: old navy right (laughs)
2: Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, store cards. Store cards are actually pretty easy to get. Uh, they should definitely mm-hmm. uh, be careful with with the store cards, though. Want to make sure you're not just racking up a bunch of Why? dead. I, I love old, old navy shirts,
1: <laughs> shorts. They're so practical. <laughs> Jorts
2: Shorts?
1: Is That's, that a thing? That was private, Thomas. Yeah. I told you. Shorts things. Jean
0: shorts. I mean, shorts. I certainly don't own any, and anybody who does should feel bad, but their thing. <laughs>
1: wow. Somebody okay. in Georgia right
0: now is like, well, I'm never listening to this podcast again. <laughs> so Melanie, I'm curious, you were, so yeah. you were so afraid of the the downsides of getting a credit card. You didn't get one until you're 28. What did you do yeah. with it once you got it?
2: Like what was your once spending I got strategy? It, uh, once I got it, you know, I only pay, used it for things that already had a fixed bill with it. So I used it for Netflix. I used it for my utility bill. I used it for um, things that were already in my budget and that I knew were going to stay the same every month because I was sort of paranoid about this idea of getting into debt. I wasn't really sure how it was going to work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of dipped my toes in the water and and just paid for things that were already in my budget and that I knew I was going to pay off every single month. So I think if you're just starting out with your credit card, you know – put it for Netflix, put it on your utilities, um, you know, any of your recurring bills that you know, that are sort of already in your budgets where it gets tricky is when you start, you know, using it to go out to the bars a lot or to restaurants a lot or a new shopping spree. Um, that's, you know, with a variable sort of expenses, that's where you can really blow up those charges. I think
1: our shopping is yeah. good for your credit.
2: I would say no, Uh, you know, definitely don't want to be charging too much on your credit card and, you know, want to make sure that you can pay it off in full every month.
0: Did you carry your credit card with you when you got it?
2: I did. Uh, I was very mindful of, you know, just keeping it in my purse and only using it for certain things. You know, now I am kind of using it a lot more because it's been several years later and I trust myself and I know that I will pay it off every single month. But Mm -hmm. I definitely think it's important for people to review their spending habits with a credit card because, you know, there have been numerous studies that you do end up spending more, when you use a credit card, you know, it's, it, yeah. d- it doesn't have the same kind of pain as handing over a wad of cash. So you want to be mindful that you aren't ending up spending more. Has
0: yeah, you? I think that's that's the big thing with the credit card is you don't feel the trade happening. It's just, you kind of get the thing and then only later do yeah. you pay off the bulk amount. Um, and I wanted to bring that up because my girlfriend actually, she was like you. She was very afraid of credit cards. And she refused to get one. And I was like, Anna, you need to get one to build some credit. You've never had a loan before. So mm-hmm. you have no credit history. So she finally right. got one, but she keeps it in a drawer. And it just pays off like Netflix and a few other bills. And she mm-hmm. never uses it out in like out in the wild on, you know, regular <laughs> things. So that's definitely one thing you can do if you're afraid of it. It's just like and in that case, it's totally doable to set up automatic payments because you know exactly the dollar amount that will be spent, Mm -hmm. and hence exactly the dollar amount that would have come out of your bank account anyway. Um, I have a a card that does that too, actually. I've got one old credit card. It's got crappy terms, no airline miles, so (laughs) it just pays my Spotify 15 bucks a month, and it's automatically paid.
1: Nice. So uh, Laura also had bad credit. Uh, when we first met and there were some like missed payments and I don't know, she might have called up her credit card company and told them to go fuck themselves or I don't know, like some things that, <laughs> that maybe weren't, uh, you know, ideal. And so we came up with a strategy. I'm curious, Melanie, what you think. Um, we got her multiple cards, like you know, Old Navy, the other companies that are like Old Navy, whatever, and we put like Spotify on one, like Hulu on another, like really small payments that were easy to cover because we figured, um, well, you know, if you've made 100 payments and you missed two, that's pretty bad, but if you can make five on-time payments a month, maybe we could catch it for a lost time.
2: I think that's a pretty interesting strategy. You know, I think if you do open a lot of credit cards all at once, you can get sort of dinged for, you know, having in a lot of new credit accounts. But, you know, your payment history does outweigh that in the long run. So, mm. you know, did her credit improve over time because of that? Or what do you think happened?
1: It did. Um, it also helped making Good. payments and, you know, the amount of credit that she got went up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it helped. But. I actually have like a a trivia question for you. Um, Do you do you know what the twenty eight thirty six rule is?
2: Yes, I do. You you Uh, do? Damn it! (laughs) I was pretty sure
1: that you wouldn't know what that was. I have to go do some more research.
2: Well, I, I, I might have done some, some research ahead of time. I think, you know, Laura prepped me pretty well for this. So thank you, Laura. But the 2836 rule pretty much, you know, says that households shouldn't spend more than 28% of their income on housing and no more than 30% 36% on the total debt amount. You know, it's typically used for mortgage lenders who are looking at, you know, how much you are, how much you're going to borrow by taking out this loan and, you know, is your whole debt going to be more than thirty-six percent? And are you going to be spending more than twenty-eight percent on housing?
1: So this is I think like that's this,
2: the gist of it. <laughs> is it like a rule? So wait, this
0: so this thirty-six percent includes housing debt? Yeah. So like it if you have a mortgage, total you, debt. So
2: so all of your debt, you know, so sort of, you know, it relates to your debt to income ratio, I believe. Does like this like what, what is your total apply to
0: everybody? Debt. Because like are, are we counting a mortgage as part of your total debt. Because if I rent, if I'm a renter, then my rent isn't debt, but it is housing. Mm -hmm. So under the 2836 Mm -hmm. rule, I could put all 36% towards credit card debt and then another 20% towards rent. Whereas if somebody has got a mortgage that factors into their total debt load. So it would seem Mm -hmm. that that rule wouldn't apply to both renters and homeowners unless you take mortgage debt out of that 36% total.
2: I'm think, pretty sure it's just by mortgage lenders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not an expert on this rule, by the way. Yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> I just but, did some uh, research. Uh, on this.
1: I, I would say, I would say, Thomas, you can replace the mortgage with rent, and I think it's a pretty like good rule of thumb that uh, that 36 like percent number. If you're like, well, out of a mortgage, I so to spend 50. percent That's probably not a good idea. It's better. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, what, what so do I you guess think? like
0: if you were if you were going to live by the 2836 rule, you would have to uh, like pretend your rent is debt going by this here, Seems, yeah, because yeah, it says yes. here, think- for example, an <laughs> individual with a monthly income of 5,000 who adheres to 2836, they'd be able to spend 1,400 bucks on monthly housing expenses, which would be mortgage, home insurance, property taxes, and then another 400 bucks would be available for other debt. So if you're a renter, and a lot of us are, uh, if you want to use this yardstick here, you need to say, "Okay, my rent is basically part of that thirty-six percent."
1: Right?
2: Makes sense. Do you I see what we just so. did there with that pause, Thomas,
1: in your face?
2: Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pregnant pause. Well, now is that you hurt. called
1: out the pause,
0: you have to leave it into the episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I <can't> <laughs> we may cut out my original pause, but this one is staying in. Leave that one on I me. Mean. <laughs> So uh, we were talking about like making mistakes and a lot of times, I mean, well, a lot of times it's definitely uh, possible to recover from mistakes. I think like the the ultimate credit mistake uh, is bankruptcy, you know, and and last resort. uh, Is that recoverable from? Do you need to like change your identity or something?
2: You know, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, you know, I definitely know some people who have survived bankruptcy. I've interviewed them for articles and you know, it does affect your credit for a period of time. I believe it stays on your record, I think for seven years. So, you know, that will be, you know, part of your credit history and it will be more difficult to to borrow any kind of money for a mortgage, for a credit card. But I do know people have survived it and they've moved on to improve their credit, you know, either with a secured credit card, which, you know, I was going to mention earlier for people with poor or bad credit or no credit, a secured credit card can be a good option to sort of start over. A secured credit card uses a cash deposit that serves as your credit limit. Um, so if you, if you don't end up paying it back, you know, your deposit will be forfeited and you won't. Uh, you know, get it back. But it's a good way to sort of rebuild credit in a responsible way. You know, you do need that kind of cash up front. But if you apply for bankruptcy, you know, you you want to make sure that you're you're changing your spending patterns and your spending habits and really look at the root cause of what got you into bankruptcy. You know, was it an income issue? Was it an expense issue? Um, you know, what what was really the root cause of it all?
0: Yeah. And there are a couple of different types of it, right?
2: Yeah, I think there's, you know, at least two major forms of bankruptcy. Um, you know, really you really want to understand how it's going to affect your credit, what it actually means, and you know, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I have people coming, you know, to my blog saying I want to kill myself because of debt. And it's just so heart-wrenching and heartbreaking, and I think, you know what? Debt is not worth killing yourself over. Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. bankruptcy is definitely not a great option, but if it will prevent you from committing suicide and, and, you know, starting over, you know, it's definitely something that I think should be considered very carefully, obviously. And I'm not an expert and I'm not condoning that people just go out and do that because there are serious consequences. And I think there are also fees associated with it too. It's not just, you know, I have all this debt and I'm going to get it washed away. It's a it's quite a process. And from the people that I've interviewed who have actually applied for bankruptcy, you know, you have to fork over a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to pay some fees. It, it's, it's a process that stays with you for a while, but depending on yeah. your situation, it, it could be a, a much needed relief to sort of start over. And mm-hmm.
1: I think it's worth saying it, Cause you said there, there's, and I don't know, like all of the major types, but I know that the two and it's, it's chapter seven and, and 13, yeah. and and I guess every I think everyone thinks well oh my god I just bought like a lot of shoes so I'll just declare bankruptcy I'll keep the shoes and I'll figure it out later but chapter seven you actually have to give the shoes back and then yeah they, they sell <laughs> it or whatever they do with those shoes and then chapter 13 they're like keep the shoes but you're still gonna pay us and they put you on like a monthly payment plan so mm-hmm. I think like uh, there's this like this thought like you're just gonna get like an immediate reprise
2: mm-hmm. and almost gonna
1: reset, but neither. Yeah, it's all just
2: it's all just wiped clean. But yeah, not not necessarily.
1: Yeah, it's it's like it's like really bad and then like really bad, but just like a little different. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it stays in the credit history for ten years. The one thing I do want to mention here with regard to bankruptcy, though, is um, you know, I, I had I knew somebody and uh, their family. Really needed to do bankruptcy like it was kind of like the thing they needed to do, but they felt that they literally could not afford bankruptcy because What they were told is that they have to pay an attorney like two thousand dollars to do the wow. process for them And they were like well heck we literally can't even afford to bankrupt our debt
2: So mm-hmm. we're just
0: suck uh, And the one thing I will mention is like bankruptcy is definitely a complicated process to go through but you don't have to have an attorney do it for you. Uh, I think I ended up finding a website where you could you could like buy a book for thirty five dollars that would guide you through the entire process. And so if you you know if you have somebody smart in your family who can read instructions pretty well, they could probably figure out the bankruptcy process without needing an attorney. If you just absolutely could not afford to get one to help you.
1: Mm. So, but, but if you think that you're like your back is against the ropes and it's rough. Chances are there there are like a few punches that you could still pull. Um, One of them is refinancing. And Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about it uh, in like episodes past, but Melanie, you want to maybe tell us a bit about uh, like refinancing and why we should care?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, for people that are feeling really overwhelmed with debt and looking for a way out, I think there are two options. Number one, refinancing, which is a way of lowering your interest rate. You know, with a credit card, it's typically called a balance transfer. So, you know, you'll transfer your credit card debt to another credit card, typically with a 0% APR for a promotional period so that you won't pay interest. Mm -hmm. And because you don't pay interest on that, then you could hit more of the principal and pay off your debt. Faster, You know, interest is what makes it really difficult to pay off debt because you're getting charged every single month. Um, but it's important to know with balance transfers that there typically is a fee from three to 5%. Um, there are some balance transfer credit cards that don't have the balance transfer fee. So that might be helpful to look for that, um, Also, you want to know what is the promotional period, you know, if it's 15 months or 12 months or nine months or 21 months, you know, can you pay off your debt in that amount of time or can you make significant headway that it's mathematically worth it for you? The whole point of a balance transfer, you know, which is a way to sort of refinance your credit card debt, you know, is to lower your interest rate. That's what you want to do. You want to pay off your old Mm -hmm. debt. And have, um, you know, a new loan at a lower rate. And then I think another option for people that are really sort of struggling to, to pay back their credit, you know, is credit counseling. There are, um, organizations out there that offer free ca- credit counseling. If you, um, go to a nonprofit credit counselor, you can get a session and they can help you with your budget. And then, um, they might recommend a debt management plan. I believe they do start charging some fees once you do a debt management plan. But typically that's sort of a debt management plan is, is when you work with sort of a credit counselor and they work with your credit credit card company to lower the interest rate and to manage your payments through a systemized program. And so it's sort of like financial counseling. And they also um, work with your creditors to both lower your interest rates and then also, you know, make a systemized sort of program amount of payments to help you get out of debt. So
1: if I have like $2,000 in payments, because I've really crushed it with with my debt, they they may one, negotiate, rates to reduce that payment or make it like Andrew only has to pay 500 a month so that he can afford it and then he could pay everything back to you guys. Does that make sense?
2: I don't I don't believe they lower the payments. I, I believe they lower the interest rates and they work with your creditors on, um, you know, sort of a payment schedule that will help you get out of debt. You know, I don't know it. Two thousand dollars in debt. You know, they might just want to work with you on your budget so typically you know when you work when you work with a credit counselor you know the free part is really just budget help credit help um but the debt management plan is if you're really in dire straits and you you need help you know managing this plan because you're feeling overwhelmed with debt
1: so if you had um this debt management plan and i was thinking like 2000 in like monthly payments
2: like, oh, okay, like, got it, got like it. chokingly
1: <laughs> large amounts of debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so say like you could work with this company and they'll help negotiate on your behalf. Um, maybe because you're not good at that stuff or whatever. Uh, how would you contrast that to something like Lending Club, where they they're like, "Hey, come get a loan from us and refinance your debt." Uh, is it like, I don't know, half a dozen of one, six of the other? Like, what's what's the what's the difference?
2: You know, I think the difference is, you know, if you really sort of want that extra accountability of working with a credit counselor who can help you facilitate a debt management plan, if you're more sort of DIY, you want to handle your own debt, you can sort of refinance through these peer to peer lending networks like Lending Club, where you can take out a loan, maybe at a lower rate, pay off your old debt, and then you have a new loan with a new lower rate, you're paying less in interest, you can pay more in principle. So I think really when it comes down to it, it's more about strategy you know, do you want that accountability or that extra help? Um, you know, you can find a credit counselor at the non uh, the National uh, Foundation for Credit Counseling. Want to make sure they're a nonprofit, and you know that you're not necessarily paying fees up front. Um, and then, you know, sort of Lending Club or refinancing, definitely look at the terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. Make sure you understand that you're really coming out on top mathematically.
1: How much would yeah. these credit counselors charge? I mean. I imagine because they know you're in debt and and your back's against the wall, are they expensive?
2: I don't believe they are. I just actually wrote an article on credit counseling, and I think you know they charge a percentage of sort of your total debt. But I think um, from what I remember that they either can waive it if you're you know, you really can't afford it. And I think can be pretty nominal between like 35 and $75. I believe, um, you know, every single nonprofit credit counselor will be different. And to my knowledge, you don't start paying until you have a debt management plan, the actual sort of service of credit counseling of getting that initial consultation is free. And then, you know, if you're sort of getting more assistance with the actual plan, I believe they do charge a fee.
1: Well, so let's say I have $80,000 in debt like you did when you started and they took a percentage of that, which would, I? it's already a large number, so I imagine a percentage <laughs> would be a large number. Instead of paying that large number, how many hours do I need to spend on deardebt.com to get the same <laughs> level of results? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Probably about uh, three hours.
1: <laughs> that's, pretty, that's a pretty damn good, good return on your investment then.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a better way to do it. (laughs) I also want to mention one thing. (laughs) Um, You can call your credit card companies up and ask them for a lower interest rate. Yes. You know, they won't always give it to you, but it's definitely something you can ask for because they want to keep your business. And they know that even if you go from 20 to 10 percent interest, they're still getting 10 percent interest rather than you, you know, going to Lending Club or something. So it is in their interest to keep you as a customer and to lock in those interest payments any way they can
2: definitely totally agree
1: so there is there is a raging debate in the debt world Um,
2: stacking
1: or snowball what is your what is your option what do you choose (laughs) uh, melanie
2: yeah so i actually did the debt stacking method which is also referred to as the debt avalanche method. And that is where you really focus on high interest debt first. So, you know, I had two different student loans, actually three different student loans, one at 6.8%, one at 7.9% and one at 2.3%. And about 50 plus thousand of that was an average of 7%. And then, you know, my other undergrad loans were very low at 2.3%. And, you know, once I calculated my daily interest and realized I was paying $11 per day in interest, I got furious and decided I have to attack the high interest debt first because it's making me insane and mathematically it makes sense. So with the debt stacking method or the debt avalanche method, you pay the minimum on all of your debts. And then if you have anything left over, which hopefully you do, let's say you have 200 more dollars to allocate to your debt per month. Aside from the minimum, you start putting that 200 dollars towards the highest interest loan first and you pay off that. And then once that's paid off, the next um, highest interest rate and the next highest interest rate until you pay off all of your debt. This strategy can really help you save money on interest. Um, It can sometimes feel like it's taking longer, but you're saving money in the long run. Mm. The debt snowball method focuses on your balance. So you focus on paying the smallest balance first. So if you have, you know, $1,000 in credit card debt, um, you know, $5,000 car loan and $23,000 in student loan debt, you know, you focus on that smaller balance first and the second smallest balance and, you know, the third smallest balance. So you're going from small, to to high. And you're really sort of snowballing your payments up. And this, uh, method is typically really good for motivation because you start paying off debt quickly. You feel really good about yourself and you can keep moving forward and on and on. So, you know, typically, you know, debt stacking or debt avalanche method is all about the math. If you really, from a purely financial point of view, want to save money, that's the way to go. If you really need the motivation because you just can't do it yourself and you feel like I hate this debt, I just, I need the motivation, you know, debt snowball um, can be a good option. And also I, I have two other options in my uh, book, Dear Debt, that I've sort of mentioned because I know this whole war of debt snowball and debt, snacking, which, debt stacking, which one's better. And, you know, people have a lot of opinions on which one uh, you should go with. And, you know, two other options that I have in my book are, you know, you can pay off the debt that pisses you off the most. I I think (laughs) anger is a really powerful tool to pay off debt. You know, if you have debt from an ex-boyfriend that you're just sick of, pay that off. Or conversely, pay off the debt that makes you sleep best at night. You know, debt can be very emotional. Debt can... Weigh very heavily on your emotions. So, if there's one particular debt where if you're gonna pay that off and you're gonna just sleep better at night knowing that that's getting paid first, do that. And and lastly, my 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 word of wisdom here is the best debt payoff plan is the one that you're going to stick with. Yeah. You know, who cares what people say about debt stacking, debt avalanche, or you know, debt snowball, or you know, the two other options that I said. Pick whichever method works for you that is going to keep you consistent. Patient. that's the right way to pay off debt is whatever like plan that. you're going to stick with yeah <laughs> i <I've laughs> really that being like
1: said, channeling the anger i really
0: like that yeah. <laughs> yeah i did like that tip there are ways out that you can you can keep your motivation high even if you are using the stack method um like andrew is ready for zero still is it still a thing
1: no
2: no no so not that's not a thing it. anymore. Uh,
0: yeah. i think personal capital can do it for you or you could, I mean, the way I did it is I literally had an Excel spreadsheet with a graph and every month I would go type in the numbers of money I paid to my debt and I'd see the graph go down. And that was great. Mm. I didn't care about the individual loans. I cared about, I wanted to be debt-free. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I, I could see if you had a, a specific loan or some amount of debt that pissed you off, definitely get rid of that. But I think for most people, they just want to be debt-free.
1: Exactly. Yeah,
0: you know, my opinion is... Of course, everyone's got opinion. Um, <laughs> my opinion is take the mathematically best way and find another method to motivate yourself.
2: I like
0: it. I dig okay. it. Like the, that's what the, I did. The end, the end goal is get yourself out of that debt. Yeah. You know? Obviously, do what you want. I can't tell what you do. I'm not your dad, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I did. <laughs> anyway, Melanie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this was a pretty good foundational episode for people who are just coming into the show, learning how to pay off their debt. I think it's going to be really helpful. Um, yeah, if they want to read your book, me. read your blog, where should they go?
2: Yeah, then go to deardebt.com and also find my book, Dear Debt, a story about breaking up with debt on Amazon.
0: Cool. Well, if you want to break up with debt, then you can uh, head over to Deardebt.com or our show notes will have links to all the things we mentioned in this episode, including your book over on Amazon. So Melanie, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been an awesome conversation. Guys, if you've got questions about debt or about any other personal finance topic, to money matters at gmail.com is where you can hit us up, uh, ask us your questions, get replies, and we can talk, uh, cover other topics on future episodes. Also, listenmoneymatters.com to slash toolbox is where you'll find all of our favorite money management resources, including tools for managing your debt and books that we recommend. So definitely check that out. I think that's it. Any, any parting notes, Andrew?
1: <laughs> um any
0: jokes that you want me to to give you the sound on? <laughs> uh
1: you know i'm just gonna write a i'm gonna write a joke later i'll stitch it in and i'll just put you guys laughing on it i, I got nothing
0: i'll record some laugh tracks for you that you can just kind of put into the episode
1: okay good and if there. you guys could just laugh a little bit for the last minute and uh, uh-huh. oh my god, <laughs> uh, oh my god. Ooh, we're just nine. Some, Some of those are
0: fake. Some of those are not <laughs> Anyway guys, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week's episode. Later. Later. Later Please tell your friends about this show. <laughs>